Hey guys, uh, if you've listened to this podcast for any time at all, you know how much I care about keeping pet care accessible to pet owners and um, and how much I hate when people don't have the resources they need to take care of their pets or staff included. Guys, if you are here, you're probably pretty hardcore about pet health care. FIGO Pet Insurance helps you and your clients prepare for the unexpected so that you never have to make the tough choice between your pet's health and your wallet. Whether uh, these pets are are eating out of the trash or diving off of furniture, pets don't always make the best decisions. We know that. But with FIGO, you can and pet owners can. Designed for pets and their people, FIGO allows you to worry less and play more with customizable coverage for accidents, illness, and routine wellness. (laughs) To get a quick and easy quote, visit FIGOPET.com slash cone of shame. That's F-I-G-O-P-E-T dot com slash cone of shame figo's policies are underwritten by independence american insurance company welcome everybody to the cone of shame veterinary podcast i am your host dr andy rourke i am back with internal medicine specialist dr andrew woolcock and we are talking about hypoglycemia today we first start and talk about a little itty bitty young dog that has it and then we go into the other reasons that you see patients that have hypoglycemia this is a great short to the point overview of a very common condition that can come from a lot of different places so guys again i love this this is one of those pearl episodes where you just breeze through it it's only about 15 minutes of actual interview and um and and you're just gonna get a lot out of it in a short amount of time again thanks to dr wilcock for being here uh he's amazing gang let's get into this episode this is your show we're glad you're here we want to help you in your veterinary career welcome to the cone of shame with dr andy rourke Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Andrew Wilcock. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, my pleasure. I love having you on the on the podcast. You are, uh, for those who don't know, an internist at Purdue University's College of Veterinary Medicine, uh, residency at University of Georgia. Uh, you've been on the podcast uh, not too long ago talking about, oh, gosh, what did we talk about? I, IMHA. IMHA. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's been so long. It just disappeared from my brain. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to get you back. I've got I've got a a, a case I want to talk to you about in in a, in a sort of a general general subject matter. Um, I, let's just start with a case. I have got a young, like eight month old Yorkshire Terrier male neutered named Taz, and he is uh, he is not looking good. He's in a lethargic, trembling. I owners are are really freaking out. He does not look like a like a like a normal happy healthy dog. I did a little bit of blood work on on him, and and the main finding that I have is hypoglycemia. So he's uh he's his glycemic index is low. His glucose mm. is down there. Um, I just wanted to go ahead and ask you about this as I'm looking at this little dog and thinking, okay, what am I what am I looking at here? Why does this happen? Um, and, and and I just want to make sure I'm not missing anything. Mom and dad are like, what does this mean for the longevity of our dog? Is this dog defective? Did we get a lemon? All, all of those sorts of questions that you might have if your eight month old dog just suddenly stopped working. Yeah. Uh, so, so how do you treat that? Let's, let's go ahead and start to sort of set this up. What do you think about when you see hypoglycemia in a young dog? 
Yeah. So I, I think thankfully, um, their young dog has not stopped working. It's just that their young dog is working really hard and has a really rapid metabolism that needs a lot of glucose all the time to keep things running. And in very young, very small breed dogs, think like hummingbird metabolism. I mean, we're mm -hmm. talking small, so things are moving quickly, right? So these are the these are the the breeds and at the age where they just need frequent access to food to be able to keep their glycemic index up. So the reality is maybe this family's been feeding the dog the same way and ever so slightly this dog's been really holding steady right at the cusp of being hypoglycemic and then skipped a meal, missed a meal, ate a little less, something like that. And that's why the dog looks like it in this moment and they're freaking out. So thankfully this is a hopefully a very easy to address issue for this Yorkie. And you're probably going to end up doing more client care in this scenario, you know, to help them understand that this mm. is a problem that um, is very addressable and fixable. Okay. Why is it? So, I mean, I have a lot of Yorkies that are small and they, and they stay small. Is the fact that I see this in young dogs, is that attributed to the fact that their metabolism slows down as they get a little bit older? Is that why I'm not seeing this in four and five-year-old Yorkies? I think it's a combination of things. One is, sure, yes, as, as they age, their metabolism changes, but also when they are very young, their machinery to store glucose in the form of glycogen, their liver to respond to all the different hormonal influences that can regulate glucose nicely, their fat stores and muscle stores, which are a huge storage for energy, are just not quite as robust as they are once they're at their adult size. So they're just not, um, they don't have all the other machinery in place yet to kind of keep them balanced like they do as they as they reach adulthood. Talk to me about how uh, the presentation here is going to differ, how my thought process is going to differ when I'm looking at this eight-month-old dog versus when I'm looking at a six-year-old dog or a 10-year-old dog. Uh, hypoglycemia, presents for a number of different ways. Help me get my head around that. So let's just, just jumping ahead and looking at other patients. What am I, what am I looking at there? What are my differentials? Just start to un unbox the, the metabolic phenomena of hypoglycemia for me. Sure. Yeah. I think at its very um, stripped down level, you can think about um, hypoglycemia as being caused by one of three very broad categories. It's either going to be insulin related, and, and we can talk about that separately, but it's either going to be an increase in insulin, whether that's naturally occurring, like an insulin secreting tumor or something like that, or it's your classic, you know, diabetic dog who was given too much insulin, right? So either that hypoglycemia is related to insulin specifically, or their hypoglycemia, either because they have something that needs more glucose than they're providing it, like in sepsis or with certain tumors or something like that. So there's an increase in utilization of their glucose, or there's a decrease in the production of glucose. And so that can come like in your um, neonatal Yorkie that we were just talking about, very young, yeah. where they're just not eating enough. Or other things that can cause a decrease of production of glucose are things like liver failure, since the liver is so integral to glucose metabolism, or even things like Addison's disease, because we know that cortisol is a, a, a counter-regulatory hormone, basically does the opposite things of insulin. So if uh, it, it is there to help um, continue the production and storage of, of, of glucose. And so in Addison's disease where you're cortisol deficient, hypoglycemia would be a, a common presentation. And then certainly toxins and things can, can manipulate glucose as well. Okay. 
What is your uh, what is your sort of general diagnostic workup look like for an older dog that comes in? Main presentation is hypoglycemia. Yeah, I think if it's an older dog presenting with hypoglycemia, maybe you find it just on your alpha track or bedside, you know, bl- blood glucose. Mm-hmm. So that's the piece of information you have. The best next thing to be doing is full lab work, you know, because on a CBC you're already going to be able to identify let's say, a a really severe inflammatory leukogram, maybe left-shifted toxic changes to your neutrophils that are going to move you in the direction of a septic cause for that hypoglycemia. Or on your chemistry profile, maybe you're going to see changes that would indicate liver dysfunction, or maybe you see electrolyte changes that push you towards an Addison's diagnosis and and things like that. So really, those those pieces of blood work are going to be extremely helpful just to start moving you in the direction of, of which of those you're dealing with. And then I think if you're not finding evidence on CBC or chemistry to move you in the direction of toxins, sepsis, Addison's, liver disease, then just make sure you've got some serum saved that you can um, test insulin levels on that serum because a paired insulin glucose ratio is the way to start thinking about you know, insulin secreting tumors or something like that. I don't think I would ever do that straight away, but one of the pitfalls I see people run into is that by the time they start thinking about testing serum for insulin, they've already given the dog a bunch of dextrose and they've already supplemented and they've already manipulated the whole glycemic index. And then it becomes a lot more difficult to test for that or evaluate that. So just make sure you save a little bit right at the beginning when you've got that hypoglycemic pet. That, that makes sense. Hey, everybody, I'm just jumping in with two lightning fast updates. Number one, if you have not gotten signed up for the Get Sh- done shorthanded virtual conference in October. It's October 6th through the 8th. You need to do that. If you are feeling overwhelmed in your practice, if you want things to go smoother and faster, if you do not want to watch webinars, you want to actually talk about your practice. You want to do some discussion groups. You want to do some workshops where you actually make things and work on things and ask questions as we go along and have roundtable discussions and things like that. That's really going to energize you and help you figure out actionable solutions that you can immediately put into practice to make your life simpler and more or relaxed. I got you covered, buddy, but you don't want to miss it. Go ahead and get registered. Mark yourself off at the clinic for the time so that you can be here and be present and really take advantage of this. I don't want to sneak up on you. I know October seems like a long way away. It's not, but go ahead. I'm going to put a link down below and then when registration opens, we'll let you know it's open and you can grab your spot, but you do not want to let this sneak up on you. Check out our Get Done Shorthanded Conference. It's going to be a great one. The second thing I'm going to tell you about is uh, Banfield. Thank you to Banfield, the pet hospital, for making transcripts of this podcast available. You can find them at drandywork.com. They are totally free and open to the public, and Banfield supports this to increase accessibility and inclusion in our profession. It's a wonderful thing that they do. Guys, that's all I got. Let's get back into this episode. Let's talk about emergency presentation of hypoglycemia. How aggressive do you get on this? What, where, where are your, um, where are your, where are your levels? Where do you go from a one alarm fire to a two alarm fire to a, a five alarm fire? Yeah, I think your one alarm fire is maybe the young Yorkie Taz that you presented at the beginning, Mm. who presumably has an appetite and whose hypoglycemia so far is presenting as, um, yes, the dog looks rough, but he's just lethargic and not acting himself. And so as long as he seems neurologically with it and, and normal mentation, then in that dog, the emergency stabilization may be as simple as let's offer him a food that is, has a high glycemic index, high calorie, 
and and get a meeting. You know, I do not think that every hypoglycemic patient, even in the ER, I don't think every single one needs immediate dextrose bolusing and things like that. Because in fact, sometimes that kind of messes with the system a little bit and and causes insulin surges and all these things that you aren't intending. So if if you have a patient that is um, has a normal mentation and has an appetite and wants to eat, whose hypoglycemic signs are mild, food may be all you need in the emergency stabilization. But that two, three, five alarm fire, those are going to be the patients that really present with some severe neurologic side effects from their hypoglycemia or have already suffered a hypoglycemic seizure, whether they do that in your clinic or they come in post-ictal. That's going to be a patient that you aren't going to really want to rely on consuming food because that may not be safe for them. And that's where um, dextrose supplementation becomes key. Let's talk about that. Uh, any words of advice, guidance on dextrose supplementation? I always uh, have a little bit of panic, uh, I, you know, as, as I'm getting ready to give IV dextrose, and I always go, I, I want to make sure I do this just just right. Uh, yeah, give me some give me some some pearls on on doing a good job in dextrose supplementation that are going to get me the results that I want with the uh, with the lowest stress on me and the team. Yeah, I think that. Thankfully, this is a, a, a medication that um, is readily accessible in most clinics and has a, a very wide safety margin. So you can feel good, even if you can't remember the dose and you're scrambling and you're looking around, give some and you're fine. But a great general rule is half a mil to one mil per kg of 50% okay. dextrose um, is a wonderful place to start as a bolus. And then something that I think would help a lot of clinics so that they're not in that like nervous state between boluses of how are they going to handle this? Is their glucose just going to drop again? How often do I need to be checking is once you've identified that they need a dextrose bolus, then it's very reasonable to start them on a constant rate infusion of an IV crystalloid. So start them at a maintenance fluid rate or higher if you think they're dehydrated and add dextrose to those fluids. So we often start them on two and a half percent dextrose because then at least you know that you can attend to other emergencies that come into your clinic, things like that, and you're not gonna be feeling that anxiety about, are they just gonna plummet again? And am I gonna miss it? Are they gonna have another seizure? When do I need to reach for another bolus? And so starting them on their CRI gives you a cushion to then recheck. And, and you know, the, the two and a half percent CRI that you start, that may not be enough, and maybe you'll increase that over time. But I think that's a nice way to continue to address the problem while you're realistically waiting on maybe that CBC chemistry to be performed or things like that. Right. That that makes sense. I'm, I'm assuming that sort of the um, the amount of time that we're going to have them on a CRI, our sort of treatment schedule is probably going to depend largely on what we decide the underlying cause is, correct? Yeah, absolutely correct. I think if if this is a patient who you do ultimately identify as septic and now you're searching for a source of sepsis, then they may remain on some kind of dextrose supplementation for a while as you identify that septic source. But if it's a, a dog who ate something that had xylitol, an artificial sweetener that causes mm-hmm. hypoglycemia, then maybe they just need their supplementation overnight while you deal with the, you know, um, toxicity and, and get them through a, a shorter period. Um, so I, I think it really just depends on on the cause. So say that we've got that dog that ate xylitol or we've got that dog that's been septic and we've been treating with antibiotics and we feel like the patient's getting better and, and starting to eat again. Do you just, do you look at the patient and say, he's looking pretty good at this point? Uh, or do you use diagnostics to guide you as you withdraw dextrose supplementation? 
I think probably a combination of both. I think absolutely clinical signs are going to be the, the, the biggest part of it. But certainly, once you're making the decision to stop dextrose supplementation, there's going to be a window of time between stopping it and them getting low enough to show you anything clinically that you would love to see that trend before you allow them to get lethargic and seizuring and things like that. So, you know, monitoring blood glucose is going to be important. And something that we have started doing more of um, for, for people that, that are doing this or may not, may not be familiar are using um, interstitial glucose monitors. And so, okay. you know, those are like the Freestyle Libre, something that can be placed on the skin that can... Um, measure the glucose in the interstitium and it saves you from having to poke or draw more blood or things like that. And if you've got that patient who you think this is going to be a long-term issue, that can be really helpful in the hospital. That's, yeah, that's super cool. I, that's not, that's not something that I've gotten to try yet, but I, I think that's, I think that's pretty fantastic. Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously the, um, the accessibility of small capillaries to use a glucometer are very easy, but those patients that are very small, that, um, that you're, finding yourself drawing blood four, yeah. six times a day, and you think, gosh, I'm, you know, I, I need to, I'm, I'm a vampire at this point, I'm taking mm -hmm. so much blood, that it's a really nice way to sort of move away from the blood product and be looking at the interstitium. What are the, uh, what are the pitfalls? What are common mistakes? What are things that trip up doctors, uh, technicians, when we start talking about hypoglycemia? Uh, yeah, I think that to me, the, 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 probably the biggest pitfall is to get too much tunnel vision about how critical the acute phase of hypoglycemia is and therefore assume that the underlying cause must also be quite severe. Because I think a lot of times people worry, it, you know, in the Yorkie, the young Yorkie, people feel at least comfortable with that setting. But mm -hmm. the, the dog that comes in that's unexpectedly hypoglycemic, I think it's natural to assume that they may be septic or have an infection. And it may be natural to reach immediately for antibiotics and hope that you're going to clear it up that way. And so I think one thing I just encourage people to is take a step back and really make sure that the remaining blood work you do continues to support that assumption of critical disease. Because in a lot of cases, it doesn't. And you can start to suspect something less concerning or something that is not necessarily critical, like a septic patient. And maybe that starts to take you down the pathway of Addison's disease or, or um, maybe starts to move you towards an insulinoma, which of course is still not a great diagnosis, but is one that you can take a little bit of time with to assess and to um, start to think about you know, imaging and things like that. So I think the, the biggest advice I would have is to not just assume hypoglycemia means infection and um, make sure that the rest of your evaluation supports that if that's, if that's where you're headed. No, that makes total sense. Are there any other resources that you would point people towards? Anything? Um, I just sort of think of nutritional management, things like that, that, uh, that you found particularly valuable? I think that I would say not something specific for hypoglycemia. However, I think um, nutritional management or nutritional textbooks are really good to have. And then also, if um, even a clinic that doesn't have an ER component to their clinic, having some kind of critical care textbook, whether that's physically or um, an ebook version are really helpful for those settings where you're a day, uh, you know, um, general practice and you're hit with a true emergency situation yeah. and you're going, gosh, I don't remember what the stabilization plan is for this or the dose for this drug that's in my crash cart that I never use, you know, stuff yeah. like that. So I think making sure you've got that resource available is great. That's awesome. Andrew, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Sure thing. Thank you. 
And that's it. That's what I got for you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you liked the episode. If you did, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're not, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, if you love to leave us a little review, that means the world to me. If, um, yeah, if you like learning, uh, check out the DrAndyRourke.com website and take a look at our store. We've got some training tools. I have a Charming the Angry Client course and an exam room communication toolkit course. Both of them are on demand. Both of them are very, very good. They are both very flexible and they are a great way to learn with your team. Guys, until next time, take care of yourselves. I'll talk to you later on.